0: God's Word, Job 37, the whole chapter. Give your attention to the reading of it. Job 37. At this also, my heart trembles. It leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go, and his lightning is to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow he says, Fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, and on all that, all men. Whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture, the clouds scattering, scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancing of the clouds and the, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You, whose garments are hot when the earth is still is still because of the south wind, can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak... Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies and when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed in awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not afflict. Therefore, men fear him, and the wise of heart do not see. Thus far, the reading of God's word may bless it to us. So what's the best show that you have seen? Not a TV show, but going to the theater, a symphony, or Broadway production, where you felt the orchestra in your chest the acting and the story glued you with undivided attention. The lighting and the effects were memorized, mesmerizing. And as the curtain closed, you were stunned with wonder. You feel carbonated and tingly with emotion. You sigh in delight. This show changed you. You'll never forget it, and you'll never be the same. Yeah, the stagecraft of the theater has this powerful effect upon us, and yet there is another auditorium that puts on even greater shows. The amphitheater of the thunderstorm. Maybe you were driving or out for a walk. If lucky, you were on a chair in your back patio, but a monster storm rolled in. Dark, obese clouds rumble across the sky. Trees bow in humble, in homage before the gale force winds. Sheets of rain slice through the air sideways, and every few seconds, bolts of lightning fracture the heavens, quickly chased by ear-splitting thunder. Yeah, if you have had privilege of getting tickets to such a storm, you know they are unparalleled. And Elihu evokes this hazardous weather to bring us to the spot where faith begins... And wisdom matures, the fear of the Lord. So in the last chapter, around verse 22 or so, Elihu basically broke out into singing. He told Job to magnify the Lord and to model this for him, Elihu sang of God's greatness. By his music, he basically led by example. And Elihu is not finished with this hymn yet, as it now spills over into this chapter, We got a few verses of this hymn in chapter 36, and a few more here in this chapter. Moreover, in this ode to the greatness of God, Elihu landed upon the weather. He exalted the Lord's power in a scene in rain and lightning, and he very much stays on this topic. In fact, as Elihu is pondering the storms of the Lord, he becomes deeply moved, even fearful and jittery. As he admits in verse 1, at God's lightning, his heart shivers and trembles. His heart even wants to leap out of his chest. This is pretty intense. It's as if Elihu's on some crazy roller coaster. His heart is so full of dread, it's trying to run away from him. His blood pressure is through the roof, and he can feel his heart beating loudly In his toes. In modern lingo, we would call this a panic attack. And his mouth runs about why he's so overwhelmed with his trembling. He wants, and he even wants us, to join him in it. Elihu shouts out to Job and the three amigos, and to us as readers, and orders us to just keep listening. You too need to hear the thunder of God's voice and the rumbling of the rumbling that stampedes out of his mouth. Now, at first, this doesn't seem very nice. Elihu is shivering in his socks, and we have to join him as well? Thanks a lot, Elihu. And to bring us into his anxiety, he spouts a full exposition of a massive thunderstorm. Yet this is not just any storm, but it particularly is identified with God. Indeed, the word used for thunder here is God's voice, and the word for lightning here is the Lord's light. Also, much of the language chosen by Elihu is borrowed from other passages that speak of theophany. There are echoes here of the glory of God at Sinai and the majestic march of the divine warrior from Habakkuk 3. This is a storm that reveals the the majesty of the almighty moreover the way elihu paints this storm it's as if he's currently watching it he doesn't seem to be pulling from memory but we get the odd feeling that an actual storm is blowing in and what a storm is this is it blows in like a lumbering giant the lord releases his lightning bolts from heaven and these arrows of electricity touch the corners of the earth. This is a lightning bolt that cuts across the entire sky to strike both horizons at the same time. And then there's the soul-crushing sound. The thunder roars from heaven. God thunders his voice to shake the very ground beneath your feet. The lightning is so close that you hear it at the same time as you see it. It's almost as if The speed of sound is faster than the speed of light. And the lightning and thunder is so frequent that there's barely a moment in between. The fireworks of God paint the dark sky with vibrant colors. Elihu here is not chasing a storm, but he's being chased by the storm. And the takeaway from all this violent weather is that we cannot comprehend fully the great and majestic wonders of God, verse 5. By this thunderstorm of the Lord, we witness the transcendent greatness of God and we can only perceive a small portion of God's greatness. This is the lesson Elihu is impressing upon us. He wants Job and us to be overwhelmed by God's greatness so that we're humbled before him and are reminded that God's might is far above us. And to continue to do this, Elihu moves from a massive storm to weather more in general. The Lord says, the snow fall, and it obeys. The Lord snaps his finger, and rain showers, flood from heaven. The Almighty controls the weather, kind of like you speaking to Alexa. It marches to his beck and call of the Lord. And when, when rain downpours, when the snow drifts, the wild animals run to their dens. They curl up in their lairs, lairs. Likewise, the inclement weather seals us, uh, us up as humans. Weather forces us inside and restricts our movements. When the heavy rains come, we hide just like a bunny in its hole. Indeed, the Lord hems us in by extreme weather so that we might know it is his work. Now, this line from verse 7 is juxtaposed with verse 5. The storm reveals the deeds of God, but its majesty reminds us how little of God we can comprehend. By the weather, the greatness of God is both revealed and concealed to us. Thus Elihu continues with a winter storm. He says the whirlwind is unleashed from his cage. From the north, a polar vortex blows in. God breathes and ice forms. He exhales and vast lakes are frozen solid. Yes, the frigid breath of the Lord allows all people to walk on water, to skate upon the ice. The Lord also loads up the clouds with moisture. He charges them with electric bolts of lightning so that they never run out. And then the clouds roll and tumble. They turn this way and that, back and forth, up and down. The image here in verse 12 is that of chaotic movements. The heavy rain clouds wander and roam. They meander here and there with no seeming purpose like a drunk man. To us, the clouds are disorderly, muddled and confused, having no rhyme or reason And yet behind this chaos, there is order, God's order. The disarray of the clouds is guided by God's designs. All he commands, they accomplish across the earth. And the Lord's purposes are manifold, verse 13. It says, if for correction, if for the land, or if for love, God makes it all happen. That is by the blizzard, God can punish and destroy, or he can care for the environment, or he can express his love to his creatures. Our Lord doesn't have a one-track mind, but he's a multitasker. God's plans have many reasons and purposes, and he can do them all at the same time. The winter storm may read as chaotic to us, but the orderly designs of the Lord are behind them all. And it's this truth that Elihu wants Job to get. Thus, with the clouds floating overhead, he addresses Job face to face. He says, Job, hear this. Stand still and consider the majestic wonders of God. Job desperately needs to learn a thing or two from the powerful purposes of the Lord revealed in the winter or the weather in the storm. And to teach him, Elihu now shoots out a series of questions at Job. He hands him a pop quiz that Job will surely flunk. Do you know Job? Do you know how God orders the clouds? Do you understand how he shines the light in the clouds? Can you understand the floating of the clouds or describe the wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge? Can you, Job, predict the hot wind from the south? It burns up your clothes. Are you able to hammer out the firmament as God did? Come on, Job, explain. Tell me how God works his wonders. Can you perform the deeds of the Almighty? Well, of course, Job cannot answer any of these inquiries. He leaves them all blank. He turns in his quiz, Empty. Empty. He doesn't know how the Lord performs the marvels of the weather, nor can he replicate the beauties of creation. And Job's ignorance and inability in the arena of God's work spills over into another one in verse 19. Here it says, tell us what to say to the Lord. We cannot drop a case before the darkness of God. If I speak, would it even get reported to the Almighty? Now, the point of Elihu here is that he's making is that you cannot subpoena the Lord. The case here is a legal brief to argue before the Lord. That is, Elihu and his three friends have no idea how to form an opening statement before God who is hidden in darkness. And so he sarcastically asked Job to show him. Tell us how to subpoena the Almighty, how to force God to show up in court. Well, just as Job can't, was helpless to explain how God works the weather, well, he's also useless in drawing up a subpoena. And with this, we see the real target of Elihu. He is singing of the God's greatness to drive home the point that Job is foolish to demand a court case with God. To think that he can put God on the stand, to presume that Job can find fault in the Lord, this is ridiculous. It's silly to act as if Job can hammer out the firmament above. Thus, Job's demand to be vindicated has transgressed proper limits and tumbled into folly. What Job wants so badly is not even possible. And to impress this truth deeper on Job, Elihu adds another impossibility, verse 21 and following. He says, No one looks at the light when when it's bright in the sky and when the clouds are blown away. Now, this refers to not being able to stare at the sun. On a cloudless day at high noon, we cannot look directly at the sun, and if we try our pupils quickly fry. And yet there's something off about this simple point, for in the next line, he remarks that this golden splendor of the light, or sun, shines out of the north. Now wait a minute, something's not right about this. For the north is the one point of the compass where the sun does not show up. It rises in the east, circles around on the south and sets in the west. Bright golden sunlight does not come from the north. Is Elihu mixed up here? No, for the light he's talking about is not the sun. As we've seen, he uses light to refer to God's light. And so from the north, as he says next, God's splendor is awesome. The sun does not rise in the north, but from the far reaches of the north, from that northern mount, Zaphon, the Lord marches forth in his glory. Now here, Elihu borrows language from other parts of the Old Testament, particularly Jeremiah, where the Lord, as a divine warrior, rides forth adorned in terrible majesty, bright light, and awesome greatness. Remember, Elihu opened this chapter by describing the storm as a theophany of God, and now he finishes by explicitly citing the glorious presence of God coming out of the north. His point being that no human can can look upon the golden brightness of God. None can stand before the Lord's divine storm. And so he adds... The Almighty, we cannot find him. Exalted in power and justice is he. Abundant in righteousness, master of righteousness, is the Almighty Lord. All of us are laid low and swept away by the powerful justice and masterful uprightness of God. And all of this is very on point. We cannot look at the sun, and even less so can we gaze upon the Lord of glory. In order to put in check the presumption of Job that he could order God around and stand before him in court, Elihu's point then lands on target. But there is one bit here that's troublesome. Elihu states that God, in verse 23, God does not violate... Or better, God does not afflict. But what does this mean? Well, afflict is one of those words that needs an object. Afflict who? But Elihu leaves this open. So God does not afflict in the abstract? And yet we can find dozens dozens of examples in Scripture of God afflicting. The Lord can afflict to judge. He afflicts to discipline and to teach. Now, God does not afflict Unjustly, but he properly afflicts plenty. He has actually been afflicting Job this whole book. Overall, Elihu speaks a solid truth, but this little point once again lacks nuance and accuracy. Elihu is good, but he is far from perfect. And yet even if he misses the mark here, his conclusion is sound. Verse 24, He says, therefore, men should fear him. Now, Elihu has been talking ever since chapter 32, and now he punctuates his long-winded words with the exclamation point of the fear of the Lord. Thus, what is the application of this hymn of God's greatness? What is the right response to the awesomeness of God in the storm? It's to fear the Lord. Moreover, it's to fear precisely in our lack of understanding. The second line of verse 24 should be read as follows. The wise of heart do not see. Now the wise of heart are the best and the brightest. They are the scholars who have mastered learning. They're the spiritual doctors who are nearest to the Lord. While to see... Is to understand, to comprehend. Thus, the wise pastors fail to understand fully. Their mountains of astute learning still fall short of comprehending the fullness of God's greatness. The highest spiritual IQ is yet laden down with ignorance about the Almighty. And it is exactly in the face of us not understanding That we should fear the Lord. Too often when we bump our heads against ignorance, we tend towards the unhealthy. That is, we can't grasp what God is doing, so we'll just denounce him as incapable or unjust. We can't figure out the majesty of the Lord, so we just make up our own explanations to make ourselves feel smart. We often compensate for ignorance with arrogance and unbelief. And for Job particularly, he could not fathom why God was making him suffer, so Job guesses that the Lord is in error. And yet the proper medicine for ignorance and the limits of our understanding about God is to fear him. By the fear of the Lord, we bend the knee as the creature To honor God as the creator. In fear we trust in the lofty wisdom of God. To do all things justly. And by fear we exalt the greatness of the Lord. That surpasses our understanding. Also by fear our wisdom matures. By acknowledging that even though we can know a great deal. Compared to God it is still very little. Therefore, despite Elihu's long-windedness, his youthful pride, his wrong charges against Job, and his lack of nuance, Elihu finishes in the right place. The fear of the Lord. When all is said and done, when all the mysteries of God have been talked to death, we should always return to resting contently in the fear of the Lord. Job almost made it here. At the end of chapter 28, Job concluded with fearing the Lord. But then he went and jabbered on for three more chapters and demanded a trial with God. Job came close to stopping with fear, but then he went too far. Elihu, though, rests his case with fear, and especially in the face of ignorance. And thus he ends better than Job. whose good point here is one also that we should keep in our hearts. We should never leave the place of fearing the Lord. For by fear, our faith in the Lord forms and grows. By fear, our wisdom matures and develops into spiritual health. Moreover, Elihu hands us a constant reminder to help our fear, namely the greatness of God as it's manifest in the thunderstorm. This is one of the blessings of natural revelation. With the eyes of faith and grounded in scripture, the wonders of nature teach us about our Lord's majesty. When the thunder roars, when the lightning flashes, when massive waves pound on the beach, then we feel our smallness. In the amphitheater of nature, we're wowed by the power of God. We come to know our frailty and the puniness of our understandings. Doctors often advise us to get outside for some fresh air and sunlight. And scripture advises the same thing for the spiritual health of our fear, so that we might regularly witness the glorious greatness of God in creation. Thus, dear saints, next time a storm blows in, step outside and behold the majesty of the Lord Almighty. And yet, as true and helpful is Elihu's conclusion here on fear, it's only part of the story. The glory of God in lightning and thunder is essentially a manifestation of law. God's justice is felt in the thunderstorm and the blizzard. Judgment can be the purpose of the tornado. But this is not all that God is. His greatness is not only revealed in the law, but also the gospel. Now this, of course, requires special revelation, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his cross. Indeed, it doesn't take long for us, being out in a frigid superstorm, to realize that we need to get inside. As Elihu mentioned in verse 7, the thunder of God's voice makes us run for cover like a mole ducking into its hole. Likewise, in verse 13, one of the purposes of the tempest is love. So, the terrifying hurricane of God's glory drives us to find refuge in the arms of Christ. For in the work of Christ, we find shelter from the final storm of judgment. In the free salvation of Christ, you receive the warmth of forgiveness the cozy fire of imputed righteousness, and the safety of adoption. Yes, by the thunderstorm, we tremble at God's surpassing power, but in the gospel, you experience the stronger power of God in his love. For in the gospel, Christ takes hold of you, and no blizzard, no heat wave, and no tempest can pry you out of his love. The love of God in Christ is your strong refuge and your comforting fortress that no storm can breach. Thus, it's in the gospel that our fear of the Lord becomes what it should be. For by the gospel, love is added to your fear. Without love, our fear only trembles and shakes in the face of of a condemnation that we deserve. But Christ's love removes all anxiety of condemnation, all terror at wrath, and it embraces us with the merciful affection of the Father's arms. Sure, the fear of reverence and awe at God's glory will always remain, but when fear is mingled and mixed with love, then the dread of judgment is gone. In the cocktail of love and fear, our faith is filled with joy that Jesus died for us. Our hope is made certain that nothing will separate us from Christ's affection, and our praise becomes pure adoration and exaltation of God. Therefore, dear saints, keep taking your nature walks, To behold the majesty of the creator. But even more importantly. May we never forsake our weekly strolls in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the Lord's day worship is our refuge in the love of Christ. That no storm can destroy. Thus praise the Lord for his greatness. And magnify him for the gospel of his love which is ours now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray.